I'm glad Drake is uh, finished. <laughs> I'm, sure, I'm sure you are too. Um, my wife and I are grateful that we've been able to be here the last, um, well now the, the last two weeks, but these three Sundays. We um, were getting ready this morning and I happened to have washed my hands and the hot water wasn't as hot as it should have been. And I thought, well that was odd. So I am making my way uh, into the garage thinking, I wonder if we have a hot water problem. And in the closet in the garage is the hot water heater, and sure enough, I heard something hissing. That is not a good start to a Sunday morning. (laughs) So as it turns out, um, the shower I took was a bit on the cool side. But um, I tell you that because Brenda, at some point, she is such a, a, she wants to get things done and she works so hard at getting things done. She's a teacher and her Sundays typically are finalizing things for the next week's um, work. So she's preoccupied in the latter part of Sunday with what she's going to need to do the following day and the following week. So she looked over at me and she said, is there a chance I maybe should stay back and start getting things in order so that when we clean out the the things that need to be cleaned out when we get home this afternoon uh, to have the the people come and fix the water heater? And I said, no, I want you to go. And then I thought, maybe she was looking for an out. You know, (laughs) I don't think so, but it it crossed my mind. You know, at some point you you just realize... um, you know, we have the opportunity to do this together, and, and I'll tell you, we've both been blessed by so much of the fellowship and the service. Um, I've walked off uh, grateful for Grace's playing this, uh, the first and third week, and then um, the doxology. You know, it's the doxology is when I get to come up and, and uh, we get to open the word together. So this past Tuesday of ministry that I work with, we have our devotion time on Tuesday morning at 830 Excuse me, 8.45. And I decided it was, my, it was my Tuesday to share the devotion, and I chose for my passage Joshua 5, which is the transition from the wilderness into the land, the first Passover, the ending of the manna, and a time of worship. It's a fascinating transitional passage. And I decided at the end that I would have our room of young and older believers sing the doxology. I was so disappointed half the room had no idea what it was that you sing every Sunday before the word. Uh, We need to learn these things together. (laughs) We've got to go back to the fundamentals. How's that? I'm so grateful y'all do that. Reminds me of that great story by Vince Lombardi, the Green Bay Packer coach and the name, obviously, that's affixed to the, the Super Bowl winning trophy. There was a time in which the Green Bay Packers, they had won five world championships in his nine years, three of those in a row, and then he retires. But he, at one point, was frustrated with his great team, and they weren't playing very well. And finally, Vince decides that they need to get back to the basics. And he holds up a football in front of his team in a team meeting and says, men, we got to get back to the fundamentals. And holding that football up in the air, he says, this is a football. Some of you will remember the wide receiver that caught the first touchdown pass in Super Bowl I from Texas. His name's Max McGee. Max McGee in the back of the room chimes out, Hey, coach, slow down. You're going too fast. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I feel as if these three imputations are just that, the fundamentals. 
And we never want to go back to them because we should have never left them. A call to reform or a call to revival is really to go back to the fundamentally most important things of the faith. And borrowing the three-Sunday opportunity that I have with Drake's invitation, I wanted to be able to share what I consider to be the centerpiece, and it's not just me. I just wanted to be able to share what the history of the church has taught, the centrality of the condition of man in our fall, the centrality of the work of Jesus Christ on the cross, and the centrality of what is it that makes us stand before the Father sinless and blameless. Those three things have been described as the three great imputations. I've borrowed that from church history and others. But by way of summary, I just want to make sure we kind of go back, and I'll hit these quick. The first was the sin of Adam to the human race. I've described this as one to all. One man's sin to all mankind. In one word, I could say it's sin. The second imputation is the sin of the human race to Jesus Christ on the cross. The death he died was the punishment from the Father executing judgment upon the willing and sacrificial substitute through whom vicariously our sin was judged. Complete. That one, as a simple sentence, would be satisfaction. The Father is satisfied with the judgment and the sacrifice of the Son. There's a good chance, if I could rehearse this a little bit, that you might be offended by those first two, but for oddly different reasons. I won't go into all the detail I did the first time because it's too much, but it seems odd to our way of justice that we would be held accountable for someone else's behavior and activity. So it's offensive at some level that Adam's sin is imputed to us as our sin. Matter of fact, in the Islamic religion, they have no concept or they're unwilling to believe that anyone can die for another. So they will not accept the recognition of the second imputation. The second imputation of the guilt of mankind's sin imputed to the son who dies for that sin also offends us at some level that it seems unjust that an innocent man would die. We would object to a death penalty subjected to someone who is innocent. And we should be offended by that. But it isn't the case Because Jesus literally, by definition, he who knew no sin became sin on our behalf. We'll get into the second part of that verse in uh, our time today because it's the second half that liberates us into the third imputation. Ironically, I believe maybe that the third imputation is the most offensive to our way of thinking. It should be something that we receive with gratitude, but if we are dealing with this in real terms, it's the third one that offends everything about our own self-righteousness. For example, if we come to the third imputation, which is now one too many, 
It's the righteousness of Jesus Christ is imputed to all who believe by faith alone. That should be a marvelous announcement. You can come to the Father with the righteousness of Jesus Christ imputed to who you are by only faith. And God will welcome you through a reconciled relationship. Sinner has come home has been forgiven, has been redeemed, and now is in fellowship with the Father. Why would that not be glorious? Why would that not be the greatest news you've ever heard? I'm going to offer for one incredible, simple, painful reason. It means nothing we do matters. How is that possible? The thing that it does if we understand where I'm going with this, is it offends our sense of our own worth. We want to offer something, and I understand the sentiment, or maybe the motivation, we want to offer something to God that satisfies him, and he would look upon us with favor. The third imputation says no. It is the Father who takes the righteousness of Jesus and imputes it to us, And by that of faith alone and no deeds whatsoever. So what do we bring? Our sinfulness. What power do we have to change ourselves? None. So who must do it? The focus on the righteousness of Jesus Christ imputed to us is a focus first on the righteousness that is God's righteousness. It's his standard that he is evaluating all things by. And that means if we come up short and we have nothing to offer, we're guilty. But if he does the work and he provides the means for our justification in Jesus Christ's death, then he has the basis to offer to us by way of this imputation a righteousness that is not of us. It's imputed. It's just as good or just as real as the righteousness of Jesus Christ. It's a stunning idea, except it's offensive because we want to do something that we get credit for. Is that fair enough? Did you know that all of our denominations and all of the Christian versions of what is it to be a a believer, has some version of what you do that defines your participation in that denomination. Most of them are driven by two ideas, or maybe three. One is about baptism, one is about the ordinances, and then your organizational structure. And each one of those has something that's expected for you to be a member of that organization, that denomination. I came to Christ in a small independent Baptist church. I had no background in what would be religious life. I grew up unchurched. I've said this a couple of weeks ago. So I knew that there was something that you did if you walked the aisle. I had seen that happen in this church, and I'd been to other Baptist churches by the high holy days. I went at Christmas or I went uh, at Easter. So what happens, uh, I had seen some exampling of at some point they sing a song and during that time people feel real, you know, provoked to walk the aisle. 
And sure enough, I saw it happen. And then I would see later people get baptized. So I, rec- I recognized that um, you walk the aisle, not sure what you said to the preacher, and then uh, later you get baptized. And I can remember as a seventh grader, the first time I ever walked the aisle, it wasn't because I was believing. I felt compelled that was the thing to do, and I felt a tug to go do it. But following that, there was no evidence of new life whatsoever. And I remember thinking years later when I was a freshman in college that I need to complete the thing I didn't do. And I didn't have the language that was appropriate. At least I didn't even know how to talk about this stuff. And I remember thinking when I walked the aisle in true faith, I'd come to Christ the week prior. I wanted to make the public announcement that I had given my life to Christ. But all I said to the preacher was, I think I need to be baptized. (laughs) I didn't evidence that I had given my life to Christ in faith. I was going to add something to this other thing. I didn't know what to say. So I just offered up, well, I need to be baptized. And, of course, immediately I'm thinking later, he probably is trying to uncoach me on, well, baptism's not going to save you, which is what I would do now. What is it that you think you need to bring? Whatever you say, if it's not faith alone, gets in the way of the third imputation. Back to the fundamentals. Justification by faith alone. It would seem to be rather easy. Or simple. But maybe we're still taking a bite of the fruit that we think will make us wise, that we will know what is good and evil. We'll make these determinations. We will make the decision. We'll bang on the door of heaven, demanding that we get let in on our own terms. Yeah, he created us in his image, but it seems as if we've returned the favor. We're creating him in ours. And we want to come on our own terms. All of that is not allowed. All of that is unacceptable. So the challenge is this dilemma that we face is how can we reach the place where that is something we truly believe and trust and then live in. I think there's that moment when the degree that we think the fall of Adam is not as utter and dark and as complete as we think. There's just a glimmer of light that maybe it's not just a complete fall. Maybe it's just a majority fall. The degree that we don't see the utter sinless or sinfulness of our own life is the degree that we think we can fill up the difference. I want to offer that. If we know that we're truly, completely fallen, by nature, children of wrath, and we are helpless to do anything that satisfies God, then in turn, we will throw open the door to the amazing gift that is the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus by faith alone. And then we have another word, wonder, or maybe another one, worship. Because the result of the full forgiveness that we experience for the utter sinful person that we are is the sense of tremendous sense of gratitude and love. A complete forgiveness creates a complete love. He who has been forgiven much loves much. Make sense? So these things are tied together. 
And they are the centerpiece of what we know to be the fundamental, the basics of the Christian faith. But rather than just me say all that by way of introduction, I want us to read these things together. So we're going to go through our Bibles uh, in large sections today. And I hope that um, we can get to the third point, um, which is the salvation. But I want us to start with the impossibility of this idea and why it's so necessary. Let's go to Matthew chapter 5. And in Matthew 5, in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus makes it really clear what is expected to get into heaven. And I want to offer this. It it is a requirement for entrance into heaven to be righteous. So that's what's important. Talk about a simple definition of righteousness, just for the record. The idea of righteousness means, and the language is kind of simple, but I'm going to offer it, that we are in right standing, or we are in alignment with God's standard reflected in his character, his holiness. So a righteousness is to measure up to his standard. If we don't measure up, come up short, we would call it sin, missing the mark. So it's a sense of do we equal what is expected by God? And if the answer is yes, then we would be righteous. That's the being part of it. There's a second portion to righteousness that I want us to consider. And that is what is the doing? The doing is in alignment with the being. I want to offer it this way. Being a certain type of person deals with our identity and our condition, but it also deals with the source of our behavior. So from a righteous person, we can expect righteous behavior. Now that seems like I just turned up the volume on intensity. Or we'll sharpen our, our, our blade on the, the whitstone of, uh, let, me, let me tell you about what you ought to be doing. And quickly, we have sharpened the blade to make our cut. Don't go there. (laughs) And I'll tell you why in just a moment. But I want us to think about this idea. You can expect righteous behavior from a righteous God because his behavior is in alignment with his character. That's a no-duh. Okay? But if we have the righteousness of Christ... And that's who we are before the Father, then it would be appropriate to believe that a changed life, we are a new creature, we are a new person, is going to be a changed person by way of behavior. Are we okay with that? Where we struggle, and I think the world really judges us rightly in severity, is when we say one thing, but don't follow up with behavior. In the Gospel of John, Jesus literally says, by this, the world will know you are my disciples. You know what the this is? That you love one another. I first learned this from Francis Schaeffer saying that God essentially told us, the world has the right to judge us by this standard, that we love one another. Where does that love come from? A new heart. A love that is going to be reflective of the heart of God. 
So his children ought to be like him. And are you ready for this? Act like him. We would call it Christ's likeness. Now, we have a problem. Are you ready for this one? The problem is us. We are a fallen people. We still, we, Sarah, the moment you smile at me, I start laughing because now Sarah and I share a story from a year and a half ago. I used the phrase fallen people in a fallen world. And I told you two weeks ago the story of someone sitting over here started drawing that out in this calligraphy. She wasn't here that week. She was here last week. And I found out that the picture I took of that paper was her. So now when I say that, I realize somebody's paying attention. I heard it first from Francis Schaeffer again. We are a fallen people in a fallen world. So that means in our sinful condition, in our continued life in the flesh, we see this in Romans chapter 7, where Paul is struggling with this almost battle between what he knows he ought to do, but he doesn't, the thing he should do, he doesn't, and it's just conflict. The first time I ever read that as a new believer, I cried. I felt then the Bible was certainly real, as if Paul had some insight into my own struggle. So we will not get it done very well. We will mess up, or we'll look really ugly in stages. Isn't that what we call sanctification? We're working this thing out by the help of the Holy Spirit. As I look at that catechism, we'll begin to sin less. Or we'll be killing sin, or the Puritans used to say, be killing sin or it be killing you. So we work through these things. So enough of the definition, I think I may have overdone it. How about Matthew chapter 5? The professional people in those days were the Pharisees and the teachers, and Jesus now in the Sermon on the Mountain, verse 20, is laying out the expectation of righteousness For I say to you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you shall not enter the kingdom of heaven. Well, that means everyone listening to him is out. Because everyone looked at the standard, and this is the most important part of the statement, they looked at the standard practiced by the scribes and the Pharisees, and none of them measured up. And you know who reminded them that they didn't measure up? The scribes and the Pharisees. You see this evidence by Paul in his own testimony in Philippians chapter 3. He says, as to the law, I was a Pharisee. I was blameless. He was the cream of the crop. He was above all others. As to zeal, I was a persecutor of the church. I was the most intense guy there was. So when you put like Jesus does, unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and the Pharisees, no one gets in. If you're in the audience, what do you imagine? No hope. There's no hope. I'm done. What Jesus does next, however, is changes the definitions of who's righteous. And what he begins to do is in a pattern that is quite clear, he is taking on what was being taught by the scribes and the Pharisees. But the difference is what God expected and what God's standard was. He would say it this way, you've heard said, and then he would would recite a portion 
of what the scribes and Pharisees had taught. It was a portion from the law, the Mosaic law. And then Jesus would turn it and say, yeah, but I say to you. Now he's setting himself up, literally, as a more superior teacher of the heart of God. You've heard said, look at verse 21. You've heard said, the ancients said, we're told, you shall not commit murder. And whoever commits murder shall be liable to the court. Verse 22. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother shall be guilty before the court. And whoever says to the brother, Raka, shall be guilty before the Supreme Court. And whoever shall say, you fool, will be guilty enough to go into the fiery hell. My grandmother would not ever let me say fool for this particular passage. It's like, oh, okay, I don't want to go there. Do you get the point? Here's what you were taught by the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees. But let me tell you what God's heart is. How do we compare an angry heart to someone who commits murder? One's an external righteousness. The other is internal righteousness. Verse, I'm not going to do this the whole way through, so don't worry. Verse 27, let's just experiment again. You've heard said, you should not commit adultery. Verse 28, but I say to you that everyone who looks on a woman to lust for her has committed adultery with her already in his heart. Wait, there was no physical act, but God's standard of righteousness is internal. So what does it mean for Jesus to say, and how is it possible that our righteousness can exceed that of the scribes and Pharisees, which is the only standard to get into heaven? How is it possible? The Sermon on the Mount exhausts human efforts to be righteous before God. But he's taking on the religious leaders of that day who had misinformed the nation that external obedience is what mattered the most. Well, it did to the crowd, but not to God. So what Jesus is doing is he's raising the standard above the standard bearers of the day. Their righteousness doesn't matter. You know what the invitation is? The invitation is not for the proud to add something else to their resume and their list of accomplishments so God will be impressed. The invitation is for poor in spirit, those who are thirsty, those who are brokenhearted, those who are humble, those who acknowledge their sin before others and confess their sin and trust God to be the Lamb of God who takes away sin. With me on this one? So the idea is present even in the New Testament that somehow there's a righteousness that satisfies God and the answer is only the work of Christ satisfies the Father. So I want to make sure that we do two things. Number one, understand what it is about being. The second, doing comes out of the being that we are. Imperfect as we are, we can imagine that we will, and I'll show you this before we conclude, that we don't really understand sometimes what someone's dealing with as they try to work out righteousness from the right perspective. Well, let's take a good look at where it all began. Y'all ready for this? Let's go back to Genesis chapter 15, and we're going to find... The man who was the first example of righteousness by faith that is called reckoned to him as righteousness. It's going to be Abraham. I said this a couple of weeks ago. Abraham was called out of the Ur of Chaldees. He had grown up an idolater. 
probably a moon worshiper. If we can look at the evidence of the history of his father Terah, there's still a ziggurat in, um, in Iraq where you can go and see it. And it's good chance that Abraham had looked up to the stars in idolatry, but one night in Genesis chapter 15, this question about who would be his heir, God tells him to look up to the stars and no more is it astrology. Now it's about a promise. So God gives Abraham a promise. He says something to him, and Abraham, against all odds, believes. Genesis chapter 15, verse 1. After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abraham in a vision, saying, Do not fear, Abram. I am a shield to you. Your reward shall be very great. And Abram said, O Lord God, what will you give me since I am childless and the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus, not his own blood. And Abram said, since thou hast not given me any offspring or no offspring to me, no one born in my house is my heir. Then behold, the word of the Lord came to him saying, this man will not be your heir. This Eliezer is not your guy, but one who shall come forth from your own body, he shall be your heir. And he, this being God, took him outside and said, Now look toward the heavens and count the stars, if you are able to count them. I don't know if you've ever tried to do this. Um, somebody is paying attention and trying to do this. The, the word is, is there's probably over a million and a half stars visible to the naked eye. Not my naked eye. And if there are that many, I can't count them. But you can imagine in the dark night in the Middle East back in that time period, let's push it back to probably 4,000 years ago, the sky probably was ablaze with stars. Long before the Webb telescope or before Hubble and all the stuff we're starting to see. Every time I see those wonderful things on the telescope, as the heavens get bigger, evidently, and there's more galaxies, my heart fills up with God's love and, and his loving kindness gets bigger. The Psalms, by the way, will point to the heavens as evidence of his loving kindness. The bigger it gets, the more rich is his loving kindness. So what was it like to look up being childless and being told as many of the stars are in the heavens, if you could count them? He said to him, so shall your descendants be. There's a little bit of that same idea in the book of Judges when the angel of the Lord appears to Gideon. And Gideon is beating out his wheat in the wine press. You don't beat out wheat in the wine press unless you're hiding, which is what he was doing. Things were bad. Gideon is the youngest of the smallest tribe. And the angel of the Lord addresses him, O valiant warrior. Now I've got news for you. If you're hiding and you consider yourself to be the least of the sons and the least of the tribe and you're overcome with oppression and someone whispers to you, hey, great one. <laughs> you're like, who are you talking to? And at that point, Gideon is not sure that God is actually going to do with him what he said. Here's the wonderful thing about these two stories. These people have nothing. And God shows up and says something to them about what he will bless them with. 
Have you ever looked at your life and wondered, what do I have to offer? And yet you had something that was compelling, something that was coming up inside you that you felt you wanted to act on the nothingness of, you, of what you have, but you just felt you got to do it. You ever feel called to just go somewhere you don't even understand why? And you don't have the supply, you don't have the, the things that you f- might imagine you need? I remember when I came to Christ, I realized that I wanted to change schools. I had gone to hear my hero, Tom Landry, share his testimony with about 30 people. And I sat in the room with this Hall of Fame wonderful coach and I thought, I'm sitting with my hero and he's talking about Jesus. It was overwhelming to me. And I left that room and I walked out across that campus and I said, for some unknown reason, I want to go to school here. And it just came over me. I couldn't figure out why I felt that way. The very next day, I'm on the phone with the admissions office of this new school that I wanted to go to. I suddenly realized it would be 10 times more expensive than the school I was currently attending. And I remember thinking, I don't care. I'm working my way through school. I'm paying my own way. Where are the resources going to come from? I didn't care. I had no answer. I was a business major. made perfectly good sense. I'm taking accounting and I can't even figure out 10 times X, you know, or what does that mean? It didn't matter. I just knew I needed to do it. When Brenda and I got married, I had $200 in the bank. I had negotiated with the landlord for a depositless rent of six months in an apartment in Denton that when we walked into it, the fire alarm was hanging off the wall. The pizza box from the previous tenants had been left there. One piece of pizza was still in it. And I looked at my wife. Well, I hadn't looked at her yet, but I I looked at the man leading us in. I knew him in my Sunday school class at Denton Bible years ago. And I literally looked over at him and said, we'll take it. (laughs) And the the woman, my wife tells that story and she doesn't laugh. (laughs) And I remember saying to her, That's all we can afford. We'll make it work. And we did. I had a job I was making. This is crazy to talk like this. I was making eight bucks an hour. Eight bucks an hour. She was was finishing up her last year. She was going to become a teacher. I have $200 in the bank. We got an apartment we can barely afford. But we were in love and we got married. Y'all ever done that? Did you start with nothing? You did, didn't you? I used to think of these times when I've seen people who've done really well, and somewhere they sailed on together and drifted apart. They got a lot of stuff between them. So what is it that you've got this incredible, I got nothing, but I got a promise. And this is what God said to Abraham. Go count them. You've got to be kidding me. I got no, I'm wondering if Eliezer of Damascus is going to be my heir and you're pointing me to look up. Yeah, that's a pretty good model. If you got nothing, look up. Look around. That's what he does. Ah, but here's the verse. Six. Then he, Abram, 
believed in the Lord against all odds for no good reason. Everything about his rearing, everything about his childhood, everything he had been taught, everything about his culture, everything that was true about him is gone. And now everything that he had seen, that space above him and the stars in the sky and all the constellations, no, it's not about the shapes, it's about the number. No, it's not about the stars. It's not aligning your life with the things around you. No, it's about what God said and you believed. That's it. Throw out all that other stuff. God said, Abram believed. And now the back end of six, and he, being God, reckoned it, his belief, to him as righteousness. There you have it. What's it take to please God? Believe what he said. Don't offer anything. Don't bring anything. Believe what he said. Did you know that every person in every era is saved the same way? There is no Jesus in the stars. So he didn't believe in Jesus. So how is it possible that he has righteousness? I'm going to offer you something that may be a little tricky, but let's do it this way. The necessity to believe is the necessity to believe what God has said in the era in which you live. Abraham, in a pre-Christ era, has been spoken to directly by Yahweh, and the message is, this is what I promise you. And if you believed then and there what God had said, it is enough for him to say, I credit to you righteousness. Now, there's more to consider. In the eternal plan of God, understood over time, and this is a very important thing to think through, and if I mess up, Drake will fix it later. That's the wonderful thing I feel. I've got a great, I've got a great catcher behind me. If I mess it, he'll, he'll get it. But here's what I want to offer. The thing that's always been required is to believe the content of God's statement to you. Believe God. Later in time, he would send his son who would die. And we saw this last week and we'll look at it shortly. In Romans 3, that in the forbearance of God, he passed over the sins previously committed. And he manifested and demonstrated Jesus Christ as the sacrifice that satisfied him for all time. So even the Old Testament saints, pre-Christ, are saved on the basis of their faith in God's message, but ultimately their sin is covered by, are you ready? The death, the blood of Jesus Christ. All the saints are forgiven the same way. We receive salvation by faith, but our sin is covered and satisfies the Father when Jesus' blood is applied. We'll see in Revelation chapter 12, it's the blood of the Lamb that the Father looks to in the face of the accusation by the adversary, Satan, who brings to the Father your sin, my sin. He's petitioning the Father. These people are guilty. And the father looks at the son and he sees the blood of Christ by which we've overcome. The blood forgives. The blood cleanses. That's for the Old Testament and the New Testament saints. 
Drake, I'm okay with that one? Okay, good. I've got a nodding head. I feel better. All right. So, that's Genesis chapter 15. I'm going to go to an obscure passage in Psalm 106. Would you join me? Let's go to Psalm 106. This one I don't get, um, I, people don't talk about this one very much. It's kind of an odd passage. But it's another man who believed, and his belief is credited to him as righteousness. So verse 28 of Psalm 106. Now this is a historical narrative psalm reviewing the history of the Jews. And in particular, this section is the history of their wandering. And they had entered into an agreement with a false god that was very evil. And they began to do things that were very wicked. Verse 28. They joined themselves also to Baal Peor and ate sacrifices offered to the dead. Thus they provoked him to anger with their deeds. And the plague broke out among them. They were doing things they shouldn't. A plague breaks out and they're dying. But one person, verse 30, Phinehas, stood up and interposed. And so the plague was stayed or checked or stopped. And it, this action that he took, was reckoned to him for righteousness to all generations forever. You know what Phinehas did? We don't see it in Psalm 106. You have to go back and look at the the Torah. The Pentateuch and see where this event took place. It's there. They were lamenting and praying out to God at the tent of meeting. And one of the Jewish men brought a woman into the tent and they began to behave very badly. And Phinehas, who's of the Levite family, stands up, grabs a spear, goes into the tent, and the event's over. I'll spare the details with the audience that we have. But it was that act that was credited to Phinehas as righteousness. Now, that sounds like works, but it's not. What is credited to Phinehas is the faith that informed the behavior, not the behavior. Subtle difference. You with me on this one? We often look to the act as the thing that saves. No, it's the faith that prompts the act that saved. We need to be careful about the difference. We okay with that? Well, I'll need to pause for just a moment, and I need to ask us to be a little bit more transparent with how we feel about this idea of righteousness when we often feel so uncomfortable if someone really knows us for who we are. I want to offer this. I want to offer that maybe two of the greatest things that fight within us are set apart in conflict this way. There is something that we desire deeply that we do truly seek to be known for who we are. There's something in us that seeks to be known for who we truly are. And at the same time, because of our own insecurities, our own brokenness, what do we do? We fear someone knowing us for who we really are. And we live in that kind of push-me-pull-me tension. Is that fair? Is that, is that, is that legitimate? Have you ever, ever felt 
exposed? If someone knew about you, the thing you're trying to cover up, if they actually knew it, what would that feel like? I remember being a second grader in Mrs. King's class in Kennesaw, Georgia. And we had to, I remember, it's the weirdest thing. It was public school. And I can remember her walking us up to the front of the room and making sure that our fingernails were clean. A bunch of little country kids. I guess we were a dirty bunch. And we had a bowl that we would have to stick our fingers in. I never had to do it. I saw my friends do it because my nails were always clean. And she would take a brush out and brush our nail. We had a nail cleaning session in the second grade. And I can remember us praying over the loudspeaker in a public school. So I grew up with two things, prayer in the second grade and clean fingernails. And then one day, we're getting ready to clean out our desk. And we had these little desks, and I sat in the middle row at the very back. I do remember my second grade life very well. And our desk had an entrance under the seat where you put your books and the stuff you had. And the other end was blocked, so it was only one way out and one way in. And over the course of the year, I had gathered up my papers, which I love to keep papers. I still do to this day. I hold on to things. They're my ideas. They feel like they're, there's part of me in them, so I don't want to let go of them. Well, as it turns out, I had, over the course of the year, stuffed my desk full of papers And this kid sitting right next to me said to Mrs. King, Mrs. King, David's desk is dirty. He needs to clean it out. And I had the sheer fear reach over me that I was exposed that I had a dirty desk. And now everybody knew that my desk had papers in it. And I can remember feeling that weird feeling. Or as I used to ask some of the students when I was teaching at one point, you know how you make a student at this school nervous? Ask them a simple question. Is it true what I've heard about you? <laughs> Freaks them out. No, I did not enjoy punking them, but I did. There's an element of me that when I read Psalm 139, don't turn there, just let me read it, that makes me both comforted and a little uncomfortable, disturbed maybe. O Lord, you have searched me and known me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up. You understand my thought from afar. You scrutinize my path, my lying down. You are intimately acquainted with all my ways. Even before there is a word on my tongue, behold, Lord, you know it all. Does that make you comfortable or uncomfortable? I think if we're honest, maybe both. Because there are words that I may think Sometimes I actually say something I wished I hadn't said, but he knows it. And that knowledge, later, David will say, is too wonderful for me. It overwhelms him. Because here's really the issue. The issue is not that God knows all of our dirty business. It's that he loves us still. That's the issue. The first time I ever heard that God knows everything about me, Psalm 139, I was traumatized that he knew all that. And then I learned he loves me still. Or in spite of, or beyond, he doesn't see that. As far as the east is from the west, 
so is your sin from his willful knowledge. So you know the impact it had on me? I wept. I couldn't believe it. It was too marvelous to believe that that's the God I was dealing with. You have enclosed me behind and before you laid your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is too high. I cannot attain it. Where shall I go from your spirit? Or where can I flee from your presence? Nowhere. The rest of the psalm is going to talk about how he had formed us in our mother's womb. It's wonderful. We're fearfully and wonderfully made. But I think it's that knowledge. Or how about this? How about the woman at the well in John chapter 4? You know, hey, I understand you're a prophet. And then she runs off to Sychar, the city, And you know what her testimony was? Hey, come see a man who knows everything I've done. I'm not going to see that guy. (laughs) Does that make you feel, I want to go see a guy who knows everything about me. Uh, And I'm sure when the men heard her, with her five husbands and the guy she was living with, I'm sure they thought, well, that must have taken a while. (laughs) Or maybe it won't be so long for me. Either way, it's just that moment where you feel exposed and you feel awkward. How about this? How about if you have the righteousness of Christ Jesus by faith alone? How about this? You stand before the Father with the certainty your sin is forgiven, you're blameless, you're pure. Can you handle that? That is the beginning place for the Christian life. That is the foundation and the root of our sanctification. We are born again. We are new. Are you with me on this one? We have one more passage and one more story and we're done. Go to first, no, 2 Corinthians chapter 5. 2 Corinthians chapter 5. I could go to Romans 3. We did that last week. 21 through 26. I could go to 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 24, 25. I could go to, well, we'll just go here. Because they all are saying the same thing. Two parts are here. Chapter 5, verse 21. He made him who knew no sin, Jesus Christ, to be sin or to become sin on our behalf that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Now that idea, we might become, is not in question. It's the provision that has been made for us to truly become because we will by faith. It's, not a, it's a subjective verb, but the idea is not the potential that may not be realized. No, it's the means by which it will be realized. So there's that time-space continuum. He did this so that we can become. We are born again. I love this passage because it really says two things. It's, it's the second imputation. He made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf. That's the second imputation. And now, in just a few words, it tells us the third and last. That we might become the righteousness of God in him. I want to offer that one of the most amazing things about this topic isn't 
this truth, although it is, it's the, it changes our lives. It reframes our position about the way we think about ourselves. Do you really truly believe that God sees you as sinless? Do you understand fully? Probably not, because it's so wonderful an idea. David says it's too wonderful for me. But go there. Allow yourself to do what Abraham did. Listen to what God has said about you and believe. Go where Gideon went. Listen to what God calls you, what he says about you, and believe. And if that's true and you can believe that, then you know what you do next is you begin to act accordingly. Understanding righteousness by faith alone, this idea that God has justified you by your faith alone, and you are now a new creature, changes the motivation and your abilities by the power of the Holy Spirit to do something you could never do before. Please God. It's not a performance-based religion. It's in response to new life. So we live differently. Someone asked the old guy one time, a former alcoholic, he said, do you think Jesus can turn water into wine? He said, I do, because he changed liquor into furniture. <laughs> changed his life, what his priorities were. Well, I think there's a couple of other things that we have to be careful of with this, this idea of righteousness by faith. We won't do it now for the sake of time. I would invite you to go to 2 Peter and consider what Peter says about Lot. Lot is not an example of how to live. Lot actually lived by sight and not by faith. Lot ended up in a city that was driven by sensuality. His wife was ruined. He had situations with his daughters that are unmentionable. So if you look at Lot, there is nothing attractive about his life. There's nothing righteous about his life. His, his uncle was Abraham, but not Lot. Except for one thing, and this is only in the second epistle of Peter, where Peter describes Lot as righteous. What about him is righteous? And then we discover there's an inside look on Lot's heart which is being tormented day after day by the sensuality of the city. What's painful about the story of Lot is the inconsistency to do anything with how he felt. But what we can't miss is the unseen struggle that he was having. It cautions me, if I can be so blunt, that what we typically do is judge righteousness from the outside. And maybe it's just the way someone was reared or the resources they had available to them, and they looked more righteous. They may just be good-mannered. What about the person that has come out of the most dark and despicable places, and they've made just a statement of faith, and they've just come to Christ, and they haven't figured out what it looks like yet? They don't know how to behave. They haven't learned the language. They haven't learned the songs. They haven't learned the way to do things that we are so accustomed to. And rightly so, we should be accustomed but what about the awkward, wobbly-kneed walk of a new believer that can be so ugly and messed up? What if the righteousness is on the inside and it begins to change us? 
I think C.S. Lewis had made the great point to say we need to judge how far they've come, not where they are. And I think that's a very important point. The second thing that I want to make sure that we do is righteousness means that we understand what it is to be forgiven and we need to then live accordingly to forgive. Because if we've been washed clean and we are sinless before the Father because he imputed the righteousness of Jesus to us by faith, we need to understand what it is to be forgiven. And what would be the answer to that? Live accordingly. To forgive as Christ forgives. To love as Christ would love. Sometimes we might blackmail someone with unforgiveness. Maybe we feel blackmailed by someone who continues to bring up or rehash the sin for which we've been forgiven and God no longer sees. Maybe we still hold on to we want to be the judge. God said, you're sinless. God said, you're righteous. Why would I want to say you're not? Well, there's one more story. And that's the woman at the well again. Because the text doesn't say this explicitly, and I admit that. But the story unfolds consistent with the Gospel of John. Is that every time you see the number six, it's the next thing that's the revelation of the divine work of Jesus Christ, either his person or his work. So, for example, John, we see seven I am statements, we see seven discourses, we see seven miracles. John never actually used the word seven in the entire gospel. He does in Revelation, but not in the gospel. He did use the word seventh hour in John chapter 4. The nobleman's son was healed in the seventh hour, revelation of the divine. How many stone barrels were there at the wedding in chapter 2? Six. He turned the water into wine, and all of a sudden it's the next thing is the divine. If you read the song, excuse me, not the song, that's another one. If you read... The story of the woman at the well, Jesus had come to the well at what hour of the day? The sixth hour. We typically think it's the height, the hottest part of the day. We can guess what hour it was on the basis of, of some other things, but here's the point. Jesus comes to the woman at the well at the sixth hour. Later he will say, woman, and they disputed about where true worship was. Is it here in this mountain or is it down in Jerusalem and Jesus says, neither are true. He said, an hour is coming and now is, six plus the next, in which true worshipers will worship God in spirit and in truth. But the thing that strikes me as the most interesting is that in the story of the woman's history and in the story of her life, how many times had she been married Five times. And Jesus said, you're right. You've been married five times, and now what? The man you're now living with is not your husband. There are six men in her history. That's her past. That's her story. That's probably her regret. 
And I would offer it's probably the reason that Jesus went to that well to find that woman who became the first evangelist to the city of Sychar. When she went and shared her testimony, come see the man who's told me everything I've ever done. Question, in her life, what number is the man? The seventh one, the divine revelation. It was the seventh hour, and it was the seventh man who transformed her life. And she did what? She believed. You want to start over? You want to be clean? You want to have the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus to be how the Father looks upon you? Your sins are forgiven. They are no more. You want that? You can have that. All that he requires is believe. Believe in Jesus. Believe in Jesus Christ, the only one that satisfied the Father's wrath and the only one whose righteousness we can stand in. Believe. Come to Christ. Meet the seventh man. Believe in him. Thank you so much for our time. Thank you so much for your patience. Drake, thanks you for teaching somewhere else so I could join this fellowship for three weeks. And I want to thank you for the warm fellowship that my wife and I have enjoyed, your kindness. Um, we're blessed by Terrell Bible Church. Let's pray together. Father, I thank you for the moments you've given us to study your word, to consider these amazing things, the things that you've done with our race, the race of man. In our fallenness, you called us to what we were, sinners. Father, you gave us a lamb, the only one that takes away the sin of the world, and he died for us. We say thank you. We worship you. We worship him and we celebrate him. Father, we also know that in the most unlikely of things, the most unreasonable, the most unmerited, you have given us the righteousness of your son. Your requirement was faith. And Father, you helped our unbelief. So, Father, we thank you. We thank you for the fellowship of the saints and the church. We thank you for the ministry of Drake and Barb and their continued service. Father, I'm blessed by the fellowship of these men and women, and I ask that you would bless them as they continue to experience the wonderful things of being a church family. All of this in the name of Christ, we bless and praise you. Amen.